0: Luke chapter 5 verse 27 After this Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth Follow me he said to him and he got up and followed him leaving everything behind Then Levi gave a great banquet in his house for Jesus and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them But the Pharisees and their experts in the law complained to his disciples saying why do you eat with drink and drink with tax collectors and sinners Jesus answered them, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We know enough about tax collectors at this point that basically tax collectors are in charge of collecting the tax for Rome. And Jesus doesn't really have a problem with people collecting taxes for Rome. The problem is that the tax collectors were extorting people. there's nothing wrong so basically if Rome is requiring like 50 bucks from each person every month or something like that there's nothing wrong with the tax collector going to get that I mean Rome provided roads and educations and water and aqueducts and all kinds of stuff and there's nothing wrong with the tax collector charging a fee okay lots of people add a fee on for their services if Rome's not paying them um, tipping people all these kind of things are all added on And so there's nothing wrong with them like adding like another five or ten bucks for their own salary and their own hard work. The problem was is when they were like, hey, the tax is actually like a hundred bucks and I'm getting a hundred and Rome's getting a hundred or whatever they wanted to make it. And most people would say that's not fair. But the problem is they also went around with Roman soldiers and nobody wants to be crucified. And so you don't make the argument. You just pay the money. And so it was a shakedown and everybody knew that. And so this is why tax collectors were ungodly because they were extorting, oppressing the people, and two, nobody didn't like, and then, and then nobody liked them because they were being extorted. And then on top of that, they were ty- typically Jews, and they were seen as traitors. And even if you weren't a, like an absolute zealot who believed that you should take up arms against Rome and kill them, nobody really likes a sellout either. Even if you're not willing to fight, they were seen that way. So once again, Jesus is going to the sinners. And not just the sinners, but a traitor. Hey, it's, it's one thing for somebody to sin and commit crimes. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of understand that people make, make mistakes. More people understand that people make mistakes and sin than not. And they're willing to deal with a lot of things. They may not just hang out. They may just say, well, I don't want to be around you. Or they might judge you a little bit. But most of the time, people avoid you if you're a really bad sinner. But your traitor, that brings a whole extra level of despise. He comes to him and says, you're going to be my disciple. Now, obviously, something was already happening in Levi that Jesus tapped into. The chosen goes into its own things, but we don't really know completely. And so he taps into that. But it says he left everything behind. Now, it's very important to understand But Jesus does not have a universal message that you are to give up everything, like sell everything, give up your house, give up your checking account, sell all your cars, live in a cardboard box. One, he never actually said that. And two, that's not practical. It's really hard to serve people when you have absolutely nothing. And why would Jesus teach about hospitality and using your money to win friends and all kinds of stuff and the parable of the talents and all that kind of stuff if he basically was like, but you're not allowed to have anything. The other thing that makes it very clear that he's not calling Levi to leave everything and sell everything to the poor was because Levi ends up throwing a huge banquet and inviting a bunch of people over. And that's hard to do when you sold everything and gave it to the poor. There is a case where Jesus does tell the man to do that, but that was an individual, very specific case to that man because that man had a different heart issue than other people do. This is not Jesus saying, leave everything behind as in sell everything. This is Jesus saying, leave everything behind as in the lifestyle that you have been pursuing. The fact that you have been working with Rome at the expense of other people, the fact that you have been the oppressor, the fact that you have made material gain your life focus. That is what he's leaving behind. And instead of using his home for his own gratification, Now he's using his home and opening it up for everybody. There's nothing wrong with having a big home or lots of cars or a big swimming pool or that kind of stuff as long as it's open to people in the ministry. And this is what Jesus is talking about. So he ends up doing this, and the the, the Pharisees come along, and they basically say, those sinners, they see them as other. And they do not like the fact that Jesus is not only hanging out with sinners, because remember, they're sinners, so God has rejected them, and they're not a part of the covenant. Therefore, they're not saved, and therefore they can never be saved. On top of that, he's a traitor. And Rome has not come to be saved. Rome has become, no, God hasn't come to save Rome. God has come to conquer and destroy all that is Rome. And so this doesn't fit into their worldview at all. They have no comprehension of that. Now, for you and I, we may not lump every sinner into this group, every type of sinner and say, oh, God can have nothing to do with them. And we may not look at Rome and say that because Italy is not that anymore. Um, But we all have somebody that we are either view that way or we're tempted to default into that. Like if we really sat down and think about it, we're like, okay, that's kind of dumb. That's not godly. That's not Christian. But because of our upbringing... Or because we were wronged very badly or wound very badly by somebody in our past our default tends to be like those people uncertain people and then you either nurture that and do not change that or you do question it and realize that's not the correct behavior but you don't really know how to change it because it's so much a part of you so we all have that in us at certain places and certain times in our life depending on our upbringing or even our wounds in our life. And it can be as any from like a particular race of people, a particular gender, or even those rich people or whatever. Like, it goes all different directions. Humans are very good at just hating anybody, so regardless of what status you have. They have a problem with this. And this is where Jesus kind of gives them their first lesson and worldviews. And basically he says that, I have not come for the righteous, I have come for the sick. I have not come for the, the, the healthy, I have come for the sick. What he basically is describing himself as a doctor. And what he's describing them as a spiritually unhealthy. And then the idea is that I love, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that I care about all these people. And just like any of you Pharisees, if you had a sick or wounded human in your family, or an animal, you would attend to them or get a doctor. And this is how I view view them. And I think this is radical, even for us. We know this phrase. We've heard Jesus say this. But if you really think about it, Jesus is not viewing the adulterer, or the murderer, or the liar, or the thief, or or the gossiper, or the, the glutton, or any of that. He's not viewing it as sin. He's viewing it as sick, unhealthy. Now, don't get me wrong. He is viewing it as sin, okay? He does very much see that sin does have consequences. And for those who do not repent of their sins and come to Christ, there are consequences, and there is a judgment from God. And there is a hell. And he will make that very clear throughout his ministry. But that's on a the theological level. On a love for the world. On these are my children. On this is theological. Um, on a practical level. On a, re- a better, on a relational level. That's what I'm looking for. On a relational level, he sees his children who are sick. And of course, later with the parable of the lost, he's going to add to that. He sees his children as lost confused. And and this has carried on all the way into his life when we are literally nailing him to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they're doing. And I think if we really think about this, like if we could radically shift our perspective on people and not see that kind of a sin as a horrible sinner, but that they're sick, they're lost, they're confused, they're hopeless. And nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to be. It's usually a result of woundings and gradual abandonment over time that they end up in desperation, begin to do things like that. And I think it's very powerful to do a Now, obviously, if somebody's shaking their fist at God and they're like, screw this, I don't see this as wrong, I'm not going to change, I'm not going to repent, you can't judge me. Obviously, you still have compassion for them. You're still to see them as lost. You're still seeing them as sick. But at the same time, you also see them as this is rebellion, and there are consequences from that. And that's a hard tension to maintain. It's very hard tension to, so to speak, as love the sinner but hate the sin. But this is what Christ is doing. He sees them as his children that are sick. And it's a very radical worldview to have on those who are sinful and those who are traitors. Traitors. But then he makes this comment, like, I have not come for the righteous, but for the sinners in repentance. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that the Pharisees are righteous. They are not righteous. On the outwards, they are. And you know that they're not righteous because later Jesus will come along and he'll say that you are whitewashed tombs. Now remember a whitewashed tomb is where you come to the grave site and it's bleached by the sun and it looks all pretty and it's marble and you polish it and you put your flowers there and you're like, oh, isn't this a great gra- gravestone that we got from grandpa? But under the ground, it's just a rotting corpse. And so what looks beautiful on the outside is actually dead and rotting on the inside. And Jesus compares, says the Pharisees are that. And then in case you ever never thought that Jesus ever had any harsh words for anybody, he also said that it would be better for you to tie a large millstone rock around your neck and jump in the water than to live another day and teach these people another day. Mm -hmm. And then my other phrase is, the parent in me can relate to this, is when he says, how much longer must I put up with you people? I can't wait to go back to the Father where everything's great again. Jesus does see them as very dead very sinful, very lost, and in fact, he has far harsher words for them than any of the tax collectors or the adulterers or the prostitutes in any kind of way. What he's not saying is that they are righteous. What he's saying is that he does not come for those who both see themselves as righteous. Those who think that they're healthy, they don't go to the doctor. Those are in denial about their sickness, they don't go to the doctor. And you can't help those people. You you can't that you can't treat them because they won't do what you tell them to do, and you can't drag people off in shackles and put them into surgery tables. They don't see them as that. And what he's basically saying is, I have I've come for the people who have faith and are willing to repent. And I don't care if you're a Pharisee. I don't care if you're a tax collector. I don't care if you're an adulterer. I don't care if your biggest problem is that you just have some anger issues and gossip problems. If you're willing to repent, that's who I've come for. I've come for the people who see their needs, to see that they're sick. And this is the heart of Jesus' relational ministry. Chapter 5, verse 33. Then they said to him, John's disciples frequently fasted and prayed, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours continue to eat and drink. So Jesus said to them, You cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days are coming when the bridegroom is taken from them, and at that time they will fast. And he also told them a parable. They're complaining. They're like, okay, we'll find that. We've got something else to complain about. And they complain that like fasting actually was never really completely required by God. There was a few festivals where God had them fast and that kind of stuff. But it was never a mandatory statement in the law that you had to fast. But the Pharisees did fast. And all Pharisees fasted twice a week at least. They would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the ones who really wanted to show off would fast even more than that. And so they took pride in this fasting. They took pride in the fact that they physically denied themselves in order to show how godly they were. And John was ascetic. He denied himself material comforts and material um, wealth. He denied himself um, abundance of food. He was a wild, wilderness kind of a man, and so they saw him fasting and denying himself. and And of course, they didn't really like everything John said, but John looked and fit a little bit more into their picture of what it meant to be spiritual, at least, than Jesus. Jesus came and he drank wine. He he went to parties. He hung out. He didn't really fast um a regular i mean we know that he did fast at different times but not on a regular weekly basis and a hey look at me kind of a sense and they had a problem with that and this is going to be a topic that will come up again and later in jesus ministry Well, he'll talk about how john did this and i did this and you don't like either way really they're complaining like why aren't you teaching proper rabbi protocol to your disciples Okay, this is like um, Dead Poets Society when they're really angry with his classroom management. That's not what we're about here at this Ivy League school. And so they're upset about that. This is not the way that you teach. And Jesus basically makes the point like, you don't fast when you're at the wedding. Mm -hmm. I'm the bridegroom. I've come. It is the year of Jubilee. Mm -hmm. I have come to set captives free. I have come to bring life. There's no reason to fast. Because remember, the whole point of fasting is to deny yourself of your physical dependencies and rest in God and discover who you really are and submit to him and find your strength in him. Jesus says, this is a wedding feast. I am the bridegroom and this goes back into jeremiah 31 31 when he says you knew me as a lord as a god but a day is coming where you will call me a husband Mm -hmm. and this is very significant because the first miracle he does is at a wedding and he's announcing that the bridegroom has come he's saying there's no reason when i leave they can fast all they want again because then i'm not longer here and fasting is absolutely essential and a spiritual discipline not in a required demand obedience in order to connect to the father that is absent physically from you but that's not the time so then he tells them this parable no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on the old garment if he does it will have torn the new and the pieces from the new will not match the old And no one pours new wine into the old wineskins, and if he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is good enough. He gives two illustrations. So you have these clothes, and you have washed them, and dried them, and worn them and wash them and dry them and warm them, wash them dry and warm them, over and over and over again. And we know that they expand with wear and shrink with washing and over and over again and eventually they kind of find their shape and they don't change that much. Drying things and washing things shrink things. So you get a hole in the knees and you decide to put a brand new piece of fabric on it and patch it. Well the first thing you wash it and dry it, of course the patch is going to shrink But the old garments that have already gone through their shrinking process won't. So as the patch shrinks, the threads that bind it to the old will just rip and it will destroy both. Both will be destroyed. Everybody who's worked in seamstress knows that. The other parable is nobody puts new wine in old wineskins. Wine, by the way, there was no grape juice in the ancient world. Because without chemicals and without refrigeration, grape juice only lasts for about a day. So if you ever just squeeze freshly oranges or apples or grapes or whatever and put on the counter, by the next morning, it's got a nice little flavor to it. We now can preserve that because we have chemicals. We have pasteurization. We have refrigerators. So in the ancient world, you would you would make this wine and you would get wine skins from animal skins, and you would stitch them together, and leather is new. It's supple, and it, it can expand really well, and you pour the wine in, and of course, as the wine produces the gases and begins to ferment, it expands, but new wine skins will expand with that. It'll adapt, like kind of like a balloon, but not to that extreme. Then eventually, over time, you would drink it, and over time, the wine skins would get older, and you Ever had the old Davy Crockett canteens? And you go back to them now and you're like, oh, this is cracking. This is not lasting very well. And so they crack. And so if you try to put new wine in the old wineskin, it'll begin to ferment and expand. And, of course, it'll bust. And you'll lose the container and you'll lose the wine. And everybody knows that you don't do that. So what's the point that he's making? The point is that the old is the old covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And the new is the covenant that Christ is going to cut with his death and resurrection. When he pulls out the bread and the wine and says, this is a new covenant. Fulfilling Jeremiah 31, 31, when a day is coming, well, he will make a new covenant with you that will not be like the old covenant. It will be better. And then Hebrews chapter 9 comes along and says, by calling the old covenant old, and in bringing a new one, he's calling the old obsolete. And what is obsolete has no value or purpose anymore for us. Now, the law still has a purpose for those who need to know their need for Christ. But the law doesn't have a purpose for those who are in Christ because we have a new law, the Holy Spirit. And what Christ is saying is that the old law and the new law are not compatible. They, they don't go together. You're going to submit to the Holy Spirit at the same time as these laws. And you're going to, you think you can like obey the two masters simultaneously. And that's not what he meant when he talked later about two masters, but that kind of an idea. They're not compatible. And you're, you're trying to take me as new wine and shove me in those old wine skins. And if you don't allow me to fulfill the law and then become what the law was meant to be, a living law in you, then you're going to just lose it all. You're going to lose the Mosaic Covenant as it falls apart, and you're not going to embrace me as I reveal life to you. And this is what you're trying to do. You're trying to squeeze the new into the old and make me conform to you, your understanding. This is not at all. Go back to the prophets. They made it very clear that the law was temporary. Temporary until you found Christ. For those who are outside of Christ, the law still has a purpose. For those in Christ, it doesn't. Now, don't get me wrong. I teach the First Testament. I love the First Testament. The law is still absolutely essential because the law helps you understand how the Holy Spirit speaks. It teaches you the heart of God. But when it comes to obedience and when it comes to power to obey, that's the Holy Spirit. It's not the law. The law is a great teacher, but the law is not the authority over my life anymore. It's Christ. And so this is the point that he's making. This would have been like a parable when he says, no one after drinking the old wants the new. And this is based on a parable or a phrase where people would say old wine is good. And the point is this. As we get older, we tend to like the things that have been comfortable We've lived a long time. We've tried lots of things. And we've found what works for us. We've found what is comfortable for us. And we begin to get comfortable with that. We begin to get set in our ways. And there's always exceptions to this in your life and many people are exceptions. But overall, humans tend to find their ruts and grooves. And they tend to find what is comfortable. And they stay there. And they're like, oh, this has been good for me all my life. It's comfortable. I understand it. It works for me. Why would I embrace this and try to learn a new thing? And this is the point that even Plato made. Okay, remember the Platonic way of thinking is thoroughly invested in the schools of the Roman Empire at this time period. And Jesus definitely would have known Platonic thinking. And even though Plato's conclusions were often false, his observations were very valid. And Plato made the observations that most people don't want to learn new things. Because it takes them out of their comfort zones. And when things take you out of your comfort zones, well, they're scary and they're not comfortable and they're too painful. And we don't like pain and we tend to avoid it. And the other thing is we don't try the new because at the same time, we also don't like the idea like maybe what I've believed all this long was wrong. And if we try something new and it works, or we adopt a new interpretation of the Bible or a new theological thing. We have to admit that what I believed in my entire life was not the correct interpretation of the Bible. And that's scary because once you begin to go down that road, well, what else have I believed that's not the correct interpretation? How far do I go with this? Is everything I believe in a lie? And at the end of your life, you don't really want to be overhauling your worldview that much. And so what Jesus is saying is that you are the old And you become very comfortable with your way of thinking, your lifestyle. And one of the reasons you become very comfortable is because it has made your life very comfortable at the expense of many other people. And so you quote this parable, old wine is good and new is bad. And you are new, Jesus. You are bad. And he says, that's not actually valid in any kind of way. Especially when God says, a day is coming when I will make a new covenant. And this is the point that he's making. He's challenging them on the way that they view the world. On the way, how powerful traditions can grip you. Now, I'm a big believer in traditions. I think traditions can be great teachers. They can be great guide rails for your relationship with God. Only when the tradition actually is guiding you in the right direction and actually producing life, and only when you actually know what the tradition actually is for. We should always be reevaluating our traditions and asking, is this really truly serving its purpose and creating life in me and other people? Or has it just enslaved us to a tradition? And this is what Christ is doing. This is his point.